High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. You may have asked yourself over the last few weeks, Who is that in our intro, suggesting that they, meaning communists, be sent back to Russia? Why, it was Robert Taylor. And who was Robert Taylor? That's a reasonable question to ask today, when most of Taylor's films have either drifted into obscurity, been eclipsed by remakes, or remain mostly memorable for their female co-stars. But if you'd asked... Who is Robert Taylor in 1937 or 1947, people might assume you had recently woken up from a coma or traveled in time. For over a decade, Robert Taylor was one of MGM's most valuable male stars. At his peak, probably third behind Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy in stature, and often Taylor's films were even more profitable than those made by those larger male stars. 
in part because he was usually paired with massive female stars like Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford. From 1939 through 1951, Taylor's glory years as a star, he was married to Barbara Stanwyck, the versatile actress who worked at every studio in Hollywood and whose career spanned 1930s pre-code melodramas like Babyface and 80s primetime soaps like The Thorn Birds, with masterpieces like The Lady Eve and Double Indemnity in between. Stanwyck and Taylor didn't have a lot in common, and many people believe their marriage was convenient rather than romantic. But they shared one very important thing. They were both proud political conservatives who bucked the leftist tide of the 1930s and later joined the anti-communist group the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was instrumental in stoking the fires that resulted in first the HUAC hearings and ultimately the blacklist. Robert Taylor would become the only major star to name names in open session of Congress. Today, we'll talk about how and why that came to be, how Taylor was painted into a corner which he could only get out of by testifying. We'll also talk about Taylor's relationship with Stanwyck and the role politics played in her life and career as a maverick who refused to play a part in much of what was considered Hollywood business as usual. Join us, won't you? for the Blacklist story of Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000. 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Barbara Stanwyck starred in westerns, melodramas, film noirs, and screwball comedies. The latter genre came into her life in the mid-1930s, after the success of It Happened One Night, directed by Barbara's sometime mentor and former lover, Frank Capra, sent all the studios into copycat mode. Barbara, whose closest friends in real life included Zeppo and Groucho Marx, was nervous about playing comedy 
and the first vehicle she got in which to try it, a bald It Happened One Night ripoff, originally called Runaway Daughter, was not good. What did distinguish Runaway Daughter, which was eventually renamed Red Salute, was that its rebellious young lady, played by Stanwyck, wasn't an heiress looking for adventure. She was a college student who falls for a campus radical who, as her chagrined father puts it, seeks to, quote, undermine the government and pervert the minds of the younger generation. The film never mentions communism by name, but the dialogue makes it clear that the father represents capitalism under attack. The system hasn't been so bad for us. It's given us this home, your dresses, your car, everything we've got. I'm afraid you'll never... The young radical eventually gets a rival for Stanwyck's affections in a soldier played by Robert Young who champions Americanism. In the end, the soldier and the system of the father wins. The film tried to have it both ways, glomming onto the rebellious spirit that made other screwball comedies hits while also championing old-fashioned quote-unquote Americanist values. And in that way, it was very ahead of its time in that this is exactly the kind of thing that post-war culture would try to do, for better or usually worse. In its own time, Red Salute was picketed by the National Student League and the American League Against War and Fascism for its negative depiction of the political left and its ultimate pro-militarism. Not long after making the film once called Runaway Daughter, Barbara Stanwyck herself ran away from what had become a toxic home life. Abandoned by her father after her mother died when she was four, Stanwyck, born Ruby Stevens, had bounced between foster homes before becoming a Zeke-filled showgirl at age 15 and a Broadway star four years later. In the flush of her first wave of fame, Stanwyck had married Frank Fay, a vaudeville superstar who appeared with her in her first big show, Burlesque. The couple moved to Hollywood together and adopted a son, who they named Dion. Barbara's relationship with Frank Fay was widely acknowledged to have been one of the key inspirations for the 1937 film A Star is Born, which was co-written by William Wellman, who by that point had directed Stanwyck in several films and knew her well. At first, Fay used his own stature as a star to help his wife get work. When Stanwyck's first two films, made for United Artists, didn't work out, Fay went to Harry Cohn at Columbia and offered to personally, and secretly, pay his wife's salary in a portion of her next film's production costs if Cohn would give her another chance. Shortly after that, Fay insisted that director Frank Capra watch a screen test Barbara had made, and it convinced Capra that Stanwyck was special when other screen tests he had watched of her had not. Capra ended up casting Stanwyck in five films, and Barbara soon found her niche. In the early talkies of the pre-code era, there was work to be had for a young woman who could make the audience root for her in unsavory situations, a feat Stanwyck managed over and over again through the early 1930s, perhaps peaking with the ultimate pre-code story of loose morals gone unpunished, Babyface. Meanwhile, Faye's career declined. With the onset of the Depression, his persona fell out of fashion, and as his film opportunities dwindled, his drinking increased. 
1932, he was arrested after driving on the wrong side of the road, hitting another car and fleeing the scene of the accident in the middle of the afternoon. The more he drank, the more likely it was that he'd get violent. After he threw their three-year-old son in the pool, Barbara took the child and checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel in disguise. On another occasion, she sought refuge with her friend, Joan Crawford. Not wanting to deal with the bad publicity of a divorce, especially given that the movie magazines had long predicted that their marriage wouldn't last, Barbara always went back. Then, in 1935, in the span of about a week, Frank punched Barbara in the face and pushed her down the stairs. Enough was enough, and under the cover of night, Barbara and Dion escaped and hid out at Marion and Zeppo Marx's house. Stanwick took with her only the clothes she was wearing and her car. Most of the remaining assets that she had earned over the previous six years in Hollywood had already been sunk into the house that she had just left. Barbara was so happy to be free of Faye that she was willing to let him have everything. But he still contested the property and custody settlements for years, even attempting to kidnap Dion. The trade-off of the star system for most actors and actresses of this generation is that they were generously paid, never had to worry about the cost of maintaining appearances, and they had the protection of a studio's publicity department should anything bad happen in their personal lives. But Barbara Stanwyck was different. She never signed the kind of long-term contract that kept most other actresses in a very plush version of indentured servitude. For most of her career, she worked on short-term deals, the longest of which spanned five years, but most of which covered just one year or one film. In 1931, Stanwyck was sued by Columbia when she signed a new deal with Warner Brothers. The lawsuit resulted in Stanwyck working for both studios without signing long-term contracts with either. The year Stanwyck left Frank Fay, she signed an unusual dual deal with RKO and Fox, which also allowed her to make films for other studios. So Stanwyck had freedom, but she could still be suspended by a studio if she refused the material they offered her. And this happened often. She also didn't have long-term financial security or the benefits of a single studio star-making apparatus. She would really see what she was missing when she began to become involved with Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor, born Spangler Arlington Brew, was billed in the late 1930s as the most beautiful man in Hollywood. What the women who swooned over Taylor did not know was that, just like countless starlets before and after him, Taylor had been sculpted by his home studio, MGM. His new name had come courtesy of MGM secretary Iva Coverman. Taking a cue from Coverman's enthusiasm, Louis B. Mayer looked at Taylor and saw a lot of potential and a lot of work that needed doing. The first thing Mayer did was send the newly renamed Robert Taylor to Mayer's personal tailor. Maybe you can't act very well, Bob, Mayer told him. But at least you can dress decently. Taylor was then put in the hands of Don Loomis, the studio's physical fitness director, who helped Taylor gain 20 pounds of pure muscle. When he first met Barbara, Taylor was the toast of Hollywood, thanks to magnificent obsession. 
The Rock Hudson starring Douglas Sirk version of that film is more famous today, but the original is worthy in its own right. Directed by John Stahl, it stars Taylor as a callow playboy who finds his calling in life after unwittingly causing the death of a hospital donor, falling in love with his widow, played by Irene Dunn, accidentally causing an accident that blinds Dunn, and then working tirelessly to become an experimental eye surgeon so that he can reverse the damage he caused and win her heart. A very weird scene of drunk slapstick set largely in a cemetery aside, Stahl's magnificent obsession has a measured pace, a seriousness of purpose, and subtlety to its performances that was unusual for star vehicles of its time. Unaware of his role in her husband's death, Dunn's older woman initially treats Taylor's character as a silly, pretty thing, and it was tempting to write the actor off as the same. No one could deny his good looks— which caused an early, only slightly more muted version of the kind of panic amongst female fans that would be directed at Frank Sinatra years later. But no one wanted to believe that Taylor was a substantive actor, or a real man. Certainly, if he had a unique personality, he didn't do much to assert it. Taylor felt personally indebted to Louis B. Mayer for perfectly launching and shaping his stardom. And when Mayer told Taylor early in his career that his persona as a bachelor was too valuable to give up, Taylor let an actress who he was in love with get away and marry someone else. In general, Taylor founded MGM a family who he valued almost above all. If Mayer was Taylor's surrogate father, Clark Gable was only child Taylor's surrogate older brother. Gable was everything Taylor wasn't, and the prettier actor idolized Gable so much that Taylor was accused of blindly following Gable anywhere, including into the political sphere. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This wasn't true. Bob had been raised in Nebraska by financially comfortable Republicans. His idea of an American was one who shared his background. And he had been taught to look down on non-whites and Jews and, of course, communists. For her part, Stanwyck had adopted her first husband's politics. Frank Fay hated Franklin Roosevelt and his New Deal and believed that anyone who supported the president or policies like Social Security had to be a communist. Once Fay became Stanwyck's enemy, Roosevelt didn't become her friend. In fact, she was so vehemently opposed to organized labor that she refused to join the Screen Actors Guild until the Guild threatened to have their sister organization, Actors' Equity, bar Stanwyck from working. Their shared political point of view would eventually bond Stanwyck and Taylor, but in the simpler days of 1936, they didn't seem like the picture-perfect match. 
Barbara was not the most beautiful girl in town. She had a certain sex appeal, but she wasn't glamorous. What she was really known and valued for was intelligence and talent. It also seems like a great deal of Taylor's attraction to Stanwyck had to do with the fact that she didn't throw herself at him. She didn't play hard to get. She was hard to get. She lived on a horse ranch with no telephone in the middle of the then-deserted West San Fernando Valley. As Barbara slowly warmed to Bob, they gradually got in the habit of having dinner at her house, where they would listen to jazz records. And then they'd go to the movie theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which showed only newsreels. Even with this limited social schedule, the Stanwyck-Taylor romance was regularly in the news. And eventually, MGM decided that if they couldn't stop Bob's relationship, they would try to exploit it. Barbara was given a one-film contract to appear opposite Bob in a film called My Brother's Wife. This movie's romantic melodrama had what the censorship office called the inescapable flavor of sex. Barbara said, We set pictures back 50 years. The film's quality aside, she was lucky to get the part. Robert Taylor was the biggest star in movies at the time, and the discrepancy between the two in terms of momentary celebrity was so great that, in a sense, his studio was doing Stanwyck a favor by casting her as the object of her real-life boyfriend's affections. But they were also doing Taylor a favor, because working with Stanwyck made him a better actor. This would become clear with his next major film, Camille, in which Taylor played the lover of Greta Garbo. Taylor's performance in that film is the product of two women. Barbara worked with Bob every night, giving him line readings that he could take to the set the next day. On set, Greta, I want to be alone, Garbo, spent time between setups not in her trailer, but walking around holding hands with Bob Taylor. Taylor didn't realize until the film wrapped that Garbo had been method acting, convincing him that she really loved him in order to get a convincing performance out of him. Later, Garbo would describe Robert Taylor as so handsome and so dumb. Barbara couldn't compete with Garbo as an ethereal feminine essence. Even at her most glamorously styled, Stanwyck brought with her an essential understanding of what life was like for real women. Her greatest triumph of this period came in playing the title character in King Vidor's Stella Dallas. Stella Dallas would ask Barbara, who was nearing 30, to slowly transform from about 16 to middle age. It was a job Barbara had coveted and had even begrudgingly shot a screen test for when producer Samuel Goldwyn refused to believe she was attractive enough to play a teenage temptress who seduces an older man of stature. Stella Dallas was a major success, and Barbara was considered the favorite for the Best Actress Oscar that year. But she lost to Louise Rayner playing a Chinese woman in The Good Earth. Though Rayner was well-respected and had admirably insisted that she play the part with minimal makeup, many thought Stanwyck had been robbed and that MGM was the thief. They had the most workers, and thus they had the biggest number of Academy voters— and MGM's Academy members always voted for the home team. To add insult to injury for Barbara, Rayner was married to Clifford Odets, the leftist playwright who had co-founded the group theater, which was perceived to be thoroughly communist. 
her husband's politics didn't win Rainer the Oscar, but studio politics may have had something to do with Stanwyck's loss. This was another example of how Stanwyck paid for her freedom. She was also missing out on movies she really wanted to make, like Holiday, in which the part Barbara wanted went to Katharine Hepburn, and Dark Victory, which would star Betty Davis. Meanwhile, Bob was still highly in demand. As a couple, they balanced one another out. He gave her sex and currency, and she gave him credibility. After dating for three years, Barbara and Bob snuck off to San Diego one Saturday night to get married. There were rumors from the beginning that the marriage was a studio setup, maybe because Iva Coverman, Louis B. Mayer's right-hand woman, was a member of the tiny wedding party. Or maybe because it took place just a few months after a landmark article in Photoplay revealed that Bob and Barbara were one of a number of Hollywood couples who were essentially living in sin. Taylor certainly encouraged the impression that his marriage to Stanwyck was somewhat against his will when he later said that the only say he had in it was, I do. The presumption that Bob and Barbara were sham married at the insistence of MGM dovetails with equally impossible to prove or disprove rumors that both Taylor and Stanwyck were gay. In the first and so far only published volume of her mammoth biography of Stanwyck, Victoria Wilson does not give these rumors so much as a mention, and instead recreates the long Taylor Stanwyck courtship painstakingly, using mainly contemporary magazine articles as her sources. She also details several instances when Stanwyck refused to play a part in studio design promotional stunts, as if to by implication prove that Barbara Stanwyck was not going to let a studio bully her into doing anything she didn't want to do, up to and including participating in a marriage for the camera. Wilson also tells the following story in language too perfect to change, so I'm going to read it verbatim. This is from pages 826 through 827 of the paperback edition of Wilson's Steel True. For Bob's birthday, Barbara and Bob decided to have a candlelight dinner, just the two of them. They went out to a restaurant and got back to the house early. Bob told Barbara to go upstairs and put on her prettiest nightgown. The lights in the house were off. Barbara went up to the bedroom, changed, and then stood at the top of the stairs. Here, Dad, she called down to Bob. Come and get it. The lights went on. A room full of people looked up at Barbara and yelled, Surprise! Happy birthday! Barbara stood there naked, a birthday present for Bob. She ran into their bedroom and locked the door. This story is also told, without attribution, in a biography of Taylor, and in that version it is Taylor who was caught with his pants off. Wilson definitely seems to present the anecdote as evidence of the realness of the marriage, but it could also serve as evidence that they had to work very hard to sell the fiction that they desired one another, to the extent of setting up a scene in which one half of the couple would put themselves on display so that a room full of people would think their surprise party ruined a night of hot birthday sex. Wilson also punctures another anecdote often presented as evidence that the marriage was dysfunctional almost from the start. While shooting the film Johnny Eager in 1941, Taylor apparently had an affair with Lana Turner. 
According to Lana, he told her he was going to tell Barbara about it, and Lana said, Please don't. But he did anyway, and that's when, according to many sources, including three books I looked at while researching this episode, Barbara attempted suicide by slitting her wrists. These sources note that the official story claimed that Barbara had sliced open her arm trying to open a window in her new home, but we know what really happened. But in her book, Wilson tells the window version of the story, says it happened in 1939, and in her sources, she points to a Los Angeles Times article. I easily found that article, and I could find no comparable report of Stan Wick slicing her wrist open in 1941, when she would have been hurt by Bob's affair with Lana. This is not to say that Barbara Stanwyck didn't try to kill herself in 1939 due to some problem in her marriage, but I can find no evidence that she tried to kill herself in 1941, and because I can find a lot of evidence that the story at some point got twisted to suggest that she did because her marriage was so unhappy, that makes me doubt much of the information about that marriage reported as fact without evidence of actual reporting. My guess is that, like a lot of Hollywood marriages, the Taylor and Stanwyck union was a little bit real and a little bit not. But it seems clear that World War II and its aftermath gave the couple something to, publicly at least, unite behind. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Bob and Barbara were obsessed with the war, long before the U.S. got involved. The newsreel theater became their nightly haunt, and Taylor frequently gave statements in the media about the duty of Americans to pay attention to what was going on in Europe. He was happy to be cast in a film called Escape, a parable about Nazi Germany, which Louis B. Mayer rushed into production in 1940 out of fear that the war would end before they could get the movie into theaters. Of course, it did not. With the U.S.'s entry into the war, Taylor was eager to enlist. He had recently fallen in love with flying airplanes and was determined to join the Navy as a fighter pilot. This was not good news for MGM, which couldn't stand to lose such a valuable star, even temporarily to the service, never mind, God forbid, permanently, should Taylor's unit end up in harm's way. Plus, of all their stars, Robert Taylor was one of the best suited to provide a face for the war effort in MGM movies. He was young enough and so handsome in uniform. He was the perfect idealized symbol of the American soldier. Mayer managed to get his way, much to the actor's frustration. When Private Arlington Brew was eventually assigned, it was to stateside aviation training. And MGM managed to keep Taylor in Hollywood until the fall of 1943. This was accomplished through MGM's collaboration with the Office of War Information, the Roosevelt administration office which worked with the Hollywood studios to create propagandistic entertainment to warm up the American people to the war effort in general, 
and in particular to the relationships between the U.S. and our then-allies. Taylor's biographer, Linda J. Alexander, insinuates that the Office of War Information had been infiltrated by communists and that their activities of encouraging the studios to produce movies which played up the positive aspects of the post-Pearl Harbor military campaign and, most controversially, the Soviet people who became the U.S.'s allies against Hitler were essentially communistic in that they curtailed the creative and entrepreneurial freedom of Hollywood filmmakers. A lot of people would revise history after the war to serve their own purposes. But for better or for worse, Robert Taylor was the only major star during the war to push back against the way his studio wanted to use him in what was essentially pro-war propaganda. In early 1943, Bob was called into Louis B. Mayer's office, where Mayer was waiting for him along with a guy named Lowell B. Mellet. Mellet's title was presidential liaison to the media. He was essentially the middleman in between the day-to-day operations of the Office of War Information and Roosevelt himself. By the time this meeting took place, Bob had already expressed his displeasure with Scorched Earth, a film in which Mayer wanted to cast him as an American conductor who visits Russia and falls in love with a local girl there. Mellet had come to Hollywood to convince Bob that his participation in this important project was imperative. Bob had rejected Scorched Earth, which would later be renamed Song of Russia, on the grounds that he didn't want to appear in a film that depicted Russia in a friendly light. This, of course, was the sole purpose of the movie, to show Americans that the Soviets were not the lesser of two evils compared to Hitler, but were a nation of human beings who felt feelings, just like Americans, and wanted the same thing as Americans, regardless of the fact that their economic and political systems were diametrically opposed to American capitalistic democracy. Bob thought the script for Scorched Earth was offensive, but he also didn't want to make any movies in the spring of 1943. He had been inducted into the Navy in February, and he fully intended to report for duty within the 30 days allotted. But Mayer needed Bob to star in Scorched Earth turned Song of Russia. He needed Taylor's handsome face to sell the idea of affection for our allies. So Mayer and Mellet contacted the head of the Navy and had Bob's service order deferred. Taylor would now be expected to report in August, giving him just enough time to shoot Song of Russia. Ayn Rand later alleged that Taylor was told in Mayer's office that if he didn't show up for work on the movie, Mayer and Mellet would make sure that his naval commission wasn't just deferred, but canceled altogether. Bob showed up to work, but he didn't put his beliefs aside. Screenwriter John Wexley, who was apparently unbeknownst to Taylor a member of the Communist Party, was assigned to hear Bob's grievances about the script, to placate the actor when he could, and find compromises that would still allow the film to achieve its purpose while dimming its star's ire. Eventually, an impasse was reached, and in June, production shut down, reportedly due to on-set disputes over the direction of the story. Shooting resumed in July, by which time Bob's sole interest was getting free of the film as quickly as possible so that he could enter the Navy. In the end, he didn't make it there until early 1944, about a month before Song of Russia opened, and made a significant profit at the box office. Bob spent about two years in the Navy, working as a domestic flight instructor, 
By the time he returned to Hollywood in December 1945, an organization of like-minded anti-communists had formed and had spent almost two years working steadily to steer the direction the industry would take over the next decade and a half. Throughout World War II, as we've seen, stars whose personal politics put them at all different points on the political spectrum largely put their differences aside and presented a unified image of a patriotic industry supporting the war. But for some, even before the end of the war, the cause of anti-communism became an inducement to use their celebrity for political activism. Many Hollywood conservatives weren't concerned with communist infiltration of the industry. Others didn't like the idea of working with communists, but they weren't going to put politics or personal distaste above making money. The Hollywood conservatives who didn't fit into either of the above categories joined the MPAPAI, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. The alliance had its first official meeting on February 4th, 1944, the same month that Song of Russia appeared in theaters. Bob and Barbara didn't attend that first meeting, but they soon became visible members of the alliance. While Bob was away with the Navy, Barbara frequently attended meetings, and the couple shared a sense of urgency about the cause. For Bob, the Song of Russia experience had convinced him that there was a cause to fight. Now, in order for Taylor, or anyone else, to believe that he was living proof that there were communists in the film industry who had power to railroad movie stars into doing their bidding, he had to ignore certain facts like the fact that the U.S. government had encouraged MGM to make movies that depicted Soviets positively, and the fact that Bob's pushback had actually worked, suggesting that at MGM, at least, a communist conspiracy would have trouble getting past a recalcitrant star. But though he was certainly aware of these mitigating factors, they didn't matter. Used against his will as the face of U.S.-Soviet collaboration, Taylor would soon become the poster boy for a patriotic American who had experienced domestic subversion firsthand. Barbara was at least as politically passionate as Bob, but while she had a relatively significant level of control over which films she appeared in, and she did use that freedom to make films that suited her politics, such as the aforementioned Red Salute, occasionally projects would slip past her own filter. The most fascinating example of this is The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, which Barbara made in the interim between the war and the first round of HUAC hearings. Written by Robert Rawson and directed by Lewis Milestone, both of whom would, within a year of the movie's release, be subpoenaed and counted amongst the unfriendly 19, The Strange Love of Martha Ivers has Barbara and a very young Kirk Douglas dramatizing the utter moral rot of the rich and powerful in small-town America. The obsession with accumulation and consolidation of power becomes a kind of madness, and those afflicted with that madness end up dead, while the working-class heroes, who have never had a break in their lives, escape thankful to have nothing but their souls. Barbara played the owner of Oliva Factory Town's factories and the wife of a corrupt politician, both of whom got there by messed-up means. And if she could have ignored the anti-capitalist drift of the film's message, she wouldn't have been able to ignore that message's manifestation in real life. The film was made amidst one of the major, violent strikes at Warner Brothers in 1946, and director Milestone walked out at one point. 
The strikes, of course, added more fuel to the alliance's fire. In May 1947, when Bob was invited to testify before HUAC in closed-door session in Hollywood, he was happy to do it. He believed that he would be able to speak freely and confidentially to men who were in a position to enact change. He was wrong. Bob did speak freely to the committee about the alliance and his staunch anti-communist beliefs, and most problematically, about Song of Russia, which Taylor couldn't speak about honestly without making MGM look bad. But the committee didn't keep his testimony confidential. Instead, they leaked it almost immediately, using Taylor's celebrity to enhance the committee's profile. This pissed Bob off. He wrote a letter to the committee, blasting them for exploiting his fame and indicating that he would refuse any future subpoena. He wrote, My last appearance to testify was valuable only insofar as publicity was concerned. My appearance in Washington can be valuable purely for the same reason. I firmly believe this to be utterly ridiculous and a waste of time, both for me and the committee. These investigations and the way they are being handled in Washington at the moment remind me more of a three-ring circus than an effort to rid the country of a real threat. There's nothing any of us are going to tell them in Washington that the FBI didn't know five years ago. Subsequently, both Bob and Barbara would refuse invitations to discuss politics publicly for fear that they were being used for their celebrity or that it would appear that they were using their status as celebrities inappropriately. They didn't want to be the poster couple of the Hollywood right, but they didn't have much of a choice. When the subpoena came, Taylor couldn't refuse to testify, and MGM didn't want him to. They wanted their pretty boy star to join Mayer in presenting a unified front. Mayer would take pains to portray Song of Russia as not a government-sponsored work of propaganda, but a harmless romance set to the music of Tchaikovsky. Much of Taylor's testimony was devoted to softening his previous statements on the film. He had thought that Song of Russia contained communist propaganda, but that was just his opinion. And, quote, a lot of my friends and people whose opinions I respect did not agree with me. He added, I must admit that a great deal of the things to which I objected were eliminated. He also now denied that he had been forced to make the movie, saying, quote, I was not forced because nobody can force you to make any picture. In their testimony, both Mayer and Taylor would suggest that Congress get to work passing laws to outlaw the hiring of subversives. And that's what Taylor's responding to in that go back to Russia quote, a congressman's query as to whether or not the Communist Party should be outlawed. I personally certainly do believe that the Communist Party should be outlawed. However, I'm not an expert on politics or of what the reaction would be. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia or some other unpleasant place. Congress wanted Taylor to testify because they knew that where Taylor went, photographers followed. It's possible that the HUAC hearings became the national spectacle that they became solely because of Robert Taylor's testimony. This is how big of a star he was at the time. The date and time of his appearance before Congress was the only one announced to the public. And as a result, over a thousand spectators, many of them women, tried to push their way into the halls of Congress just to get a glimpse of him. There were reports that an elderly woman fell and hit her head in the melee. 
When Taylor raised his hand to swear to tell the truth, one of the many photographers told the witness to stop blocking his face. The lucky few spectators who made it into the room treated Taylor's testimony as the command performance that it was, applauding at all the right times, and he exited the hall to a standing ovation. Buried within Taylor's testimony is the naming of names. Taylor's reluctance to do so is clear. It took Congressman Stripling several tries to get any names out of him, and he chose his words carefully. Do you recall the names of any of the actors in the Guild who participate in such activity? Few who seem to sort of disrupt things once in a while, whether or not they're communists, I don't know. Would you name those for the committee, please? Well, the... One chap I'm thinking of currently is uh, Mr. Howard De Silva. Always seems to have something to say at the wrong time. Taylor would also name actress Karen Morley, who had appeared in the very weird Roosevelt as dictator fantasy Gabriel over the White House and her former husband King Vidor's film Our Daily Bread, as well as screenwriter Lester Cole. Cole, who had ridden a Robert Taylor vehicle that year, was already on the committee's radar as a member of the Hollywood Ten. Defenders of Taylor would say that the actor hadn't named names. Cole didn't count because he was already under suspicion, and if you look at Taylor's testimony literally, before he named the other names of those he named, he noted that he wasn't sure if they were communists. But of course... Nobody parsed his testimony that way at the time, and for De Silva and Morley, the effect was the same as it would have been if Taylor had identified them conclusively as members of the Communist Party. De Silva and Morley were blacklisted, because one man's belief that they had caused trouble in a guild meeting was evidence enough of dangerous subversion. Taylor's testimony did nothing to hurt his own career, and that year he became president of the Alliance after the death of the group's founder, Sam Wood. Barbara's politics hadn't changed, but she never would have taken the public stance that her husband did. And the important difference between Barbara and Bob was that, unlike Taylor's responsibilities to MGM, there was no studio that could force Barbara to do anything she didn't want to do in her off time. Whatever had been real in Barbara and Bob's marriage started to die off. He had affairs with Ava Gardner in 1948 and an Italian extra named Leah DeLeo on the set of Quo Vadis in 1950. The last dalliance moved Barbara to issue an ultimatum. Bob called her bluff and let her file for divorce. Once it was made official in February 1951, a cash-strapped Bob ended up moving in with his mother before taking a second wife, the German actress Ursula Theiss. By all reports, Barbara never really got over the collapse of her second marriage, and vindictively, she insisted that Bob pay her alimony for the rest of his life, a feat that was surely not so easy after he was dropped by MGM in 1958. Weirdly, Bob and Barbara reunited in 1964 to make the cheapy William Castle thriller The Night Walker, possibly the most blatant attempt either ever made to exploit their marriage a decade and a half after it ended. Stanwyck never made another film, although she worked with much success over the next three decades in TV. A -a three-pack-a-day smoker, 
Robert Taylor died of lung cancer in 1969. Next week, the story of another actor called before the committee, John Garfield. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, with production assistance by Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. This episode was edited by Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. One way to do that is by subscribing to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing the show there. You can also follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod and tweet at us or tweet about us. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Special thanks this week to Craig Mazin, who reprised his role as Louis B. Mayer. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I'm on the chopping block, chopping up my stopping thoughts. Self-doubt and selfism were the cheapest things I ever bought. When you said love to win the back of love. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.